Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to US China series, but also we're going to put this as part of our new Investing Transformed podcast series as well. We have for our conversation with Zenon Capron from Capron Asia for a discussion on the future of crypto in the region. Very easy to get wrapped up in all the controversy and the fear mongering around quote unquote China's crypto bans, but clearly. Anyone who spent any time in Asia, particularly Zenon, who's in Singapore, which is, I would argue, sort of the epicenter of, of fintech in the region, Asia is much more than China. And I want to talk about obviously what is going on in, in China at the moment, but uh, also developments elsewhere, not just in crypto, but fintech in general. For those of you who don't know Zenon's work, Zenon runs a fintech consulting business called Capron. Capron Asia and Zenon, I am a regular consumer of your of your newsletter. Even though we were just slamming the PDF recently, is a, you you produce a darn good PDF. <laughs> and, uh, so, look, thank you very much for joining us. Let's start big picture. Where are we in terms of crypto in China? And put it into the context of maybe put it in the context of common prosperity in a general framework. Sure, sure. And, and thanks for having me again, Paul. Really, really happy to be chatting with you again. The announcement last week from China was essentially nothing new for what we've seen China's stance towards crypto over the past five to, well, pretty much a decade in terms of the regulation around that. What was different on this was they were very staunch about the point that this is illegal. In previous announcements, there hasn't been as much a talk as if you're involved in this, it's illegal. Although anecdotally, we've heard that some of the mainland exchanges, the CEOs are kind of under house arrest in Beijing or in China and so far that they can't leave. Nothing has been really illegal around crypto before and so far that you could actually get prosecuted and well, arrested, prosecuted and jailed for, for something like this. And although the regulation and the announcement from the regulators wasn't so clear about what that what that actually would entail or what the possible penalties are, one would assume that if somebody is having a bad day, you could all of a sudden have a worse year or a couple of years ahead of you. That stance against crypto in China comes from a few different places. I mean, if you look at the the, the kind of status quo in China, it's harmonious society, harmonious financial industry, and growing wealth for the middle class in China. And fundamentally, cryptocurrencies put a certain amount of risk in the stable growth of the financial industry, plus the, the, the stability of the renminbi. Obviously, with the renminbi being a capital-controlled currency, the government has to manage those flows in and out, which many cryptos would completely avoid relatively anonymously. So to maintain that kind of status quo and that stable and a harmonious rise of the financial industry and the Chinese economy in general, the government has tried to kind of eliminate any of the risks. And we saw this a few years ago with peer-to-peer lending. There's been, of course, a lot of talk around crypto over the years. And then most recently, the crackdown on the fintechs, the big fintechs in China, which we can talk about as well. But in general, when you look at crypto, it doesn't solve many issues in China. I mean, China has done a phenomenal job over the past decade of bringing people into the financial ecosystem. So financial inclusion rates are north of 70%. Smartphone penetration rates are about 75%. And there are billions of users that every day go on to the tech platforms like Alipay and WeChat Pay to make digital payments. So a lot of those challenges of kind of accessing the financial industry and accessing financial products and services aren't really there for the kind of the, the consumers or the SMEs. And, and that's in many markets, that's what crypto is trying to solve. China has a real-time payment system, so there's no issues there. The friction in retail point of sale payments has been solved by Alipay and WeChat Pay. So it's not really solving any issues. And then the, the other consideration is maybe there's a couple million people in China that are involved in crypto in some way, but by essentially isolating them or foregoing them by cracking down on crypto, you're not, it's not tens of millions of people that are affected by this regulation. And so I think the government has made a very conscious decision. Look, it's a risk. It's not going to affect that many people if we block it. So let's just block it and, and just make sure that we've squared all the corners and tied up all the loose ends before things like the renminbi, the e-renminbi launch, right? I mean, China is going ahead with the central bank digital currency, and it's important to have stability around that because that'll be a big transition for the economy and, and people in general. 
So let's go to, let's go to that point for a second. So you know, digital R and B is going to have its its coming out party at the Beijing Olympics, which is more symbolic than than anything else, right? But can you talk about how this trajectory of of banning or basically the path towards criminality of crypto, we'll call it, we'll call it that, how that has been influenced by the rollout or the, or the upcoming rollout of the digital RMB? And was there ever really a scenario where the two could, could live in the same ecosystem? I think it certainly could be. I kind of view them as two independent vectors. The, the crackdown on crypto has been happening for many years. The development of the CBDC has been happening for many years. Are they related? Yes, insofar that they're both kind of forms of value that are exchanged. If the URMB or the, the digital UN was not being launched or in the process of being launched, would they still crack down on crypto? Likely so. It, I mean, it works out that we're seeing these two things converge at the same time, but as much as they are related in, in terms of they're both affecting the financial ecosystem, even without the digital RMB, the government would have wanted to get rid of crypto. Again, very few benefits. And, and even if you get deeper into that, I mean, a lot of people have speculated around the environmental impact of, of Bitcoin. And you can make that argument of if, if the environmental impact of mining gold versus mining digital gold, how they compare. But what we can agree with is that it is additional pollution whether that's hydroelectric or coal-fired, it is using more electricity and it is causing more pollution. There definitely is an impact there. How it compares, it's a separate conversation. And with China being so focused on green and sustainable finance and sustainable tech, it doesn't really, it doesn't really fit well with the rest of the narrative in China. Right. So let's look at this through a lens of some bigger picture or maybe some flow-on implications elsewhere or whether whether or not which those who are slightly more bearish on crypto see China's clampdown as a precursor for regulation elsewhere. So you you made the point about financial inclusion, and I think that this potentially is an interesting, again, a precursor to regulation elsewhere because, again, critics of crypto, to a lesser extent blockchain, will say that it's a solution looking for a problem, Right. So if you have a country, and let's use Singapore as, as the example here, of a place where it has a thriving crypto industry, but is probably safe to say the highest financial inclusion rates in the region, right? Is crypto destined to struggle in economies that have are uh, very developed and have high financial inclusion? I think it's just different roles. I mean, we're, we're seeing things, I mean, obviously the NFTs right now are craze and for a lot of that development is happening in developed markets, right? So there's, there's always some element of crypto beyond just the financial inclusion that people are interested in, in toying around with or playing with. I think the more serious aspects of crypto are around digital assets. And, and I think that's I mean, we've already seen DBS and SGX kind of move towards it, DBS being the, the largest bank in, in Singapore and indeed the region, and SGX, obviously, Singapore Exchange moving forward with digital asset plays. And so I think certainly that will, that will be a, an area within all of the financial centers, not just in Asia, but globally, that many of the exchanges and, and market participants will need to pay attention to, because I think that is kind of the future of the way we're looking at things. But then around financial inclusion, I think the the base case around crypto solving the issues of financial inclusion was always a bit woolly in terms of what the value proposition was. I mean, there's still a lot of the same challenges. I mean, we did a study last year on humanitarian cash transfers uh, in obviously areas that have humanitarian crisis. And we spoke to some of the donor organizations in that. And it's very easy when you're sitting in New York or Singapore or London to say, okay, the cheapest way to get them is a prepaid card, you know, that's loaded up with crypto or loaded up with whatever the local currency is, and then they can just take that to the ATM. But you have to understand that a lot of these people are living in conditions where they don't have access to an ATM. So whilst looking from a headquarters perspective at this, yeah, it may only cost you 20 cents on every dollar to get that money to an individual in a humanitarian setting should you use a prepaid card. The challenge is, is then that individual then needs to spend another 60 or 70 cents of that to actually travel the 5K to get to an ATM to pull, pull the money out. So I, I think when you when you look at the beneficiary preferences around this, I mean, in many cases, you know, we have plenty of different options beyond crypto to address this last mile delivery. Uh, prepaid cards are one of them. But in many scenarios, in many contexts, 
cash in a truck is the way that money is delivered. Cash in an envelope, armored truck pulls up in the back and people take cash. It's expensive, but often it's cheaper than many of the other methods as well. And so I think crypto, especially at the very beginning, there were a lot of people sitting in developed financial centers saying, oh, this is going to solve financial inclusion because of X, Y, Z. I'm sure the value proposition is there, but you need to think about that last mile delivery. And that's really the challenge around, around crypto and financial inclusion, I think, still even today. And then again, if you, look, if you look at the series of solutions before you have a world, that utopian world of complete financial inclusion, reliable electricity is probably the first thing you put on the, on the top of that list, right? So if you look at, if you look at the studies that show what, what are the two defining factors that will take an economy from a traditional third world definition to something with a, a much higher GDP per capita, the two things that are the glaring examples for the last 150 years, reaching 70% literacy rates, and 700 kilowatts per hour of electricity consumption. Mm, yeah. Um, so, and again, last last time I looked, ATMs don't work without power, right? So, yeah, so I, I hear you on that. But again, yeah. another one of the bigger picture things that I want to focus on is this path that China is going down. Is this part of a process towards proving that blockchain and Ethereum can flourish without underlying coins? right, that you don't actually need the tokens underneath them, that the tokens are actually an, an interesting add-on, but at the end of the day, you don't actually need the tokens themselves for blockchain to flourish. To a certain extent, yes, but what it also shows is you, you don't necessarily need blockchain as well. I mean, the architecture of the central bank digital currency, the eRenminbi, renminbi is not wholly based on blockchain. The technologies that are used in that are, are very traditional technologies. It was built, as far as we're aware, is it was built in consultation with some of the large tech players, with the Alipays and the WeChat Pays, who have a tremendous amount of experience. I mean, Alipay, as an example, does what is over 100,000 transactions per second during its peak points in singles day in November. And Visa can process, I believe, 60 or 70,000 transactions per second. So already these platforms were well-established and had incredible technology behind it. Alipay and WeChat or Alipay and Tencent also contributed to the development of the centralized, what's called Wanglian or Nets Union, which is the centralized clearinghouse for digital payments. And so they've helped develop that architecture. So we believe that they were probably involved in the ERAM and B development as well. And but it's not, it's not completely based on blockchain. The government did look at that architecture and then figured that for what it needed, there were better solutions for that. So some of the unique functionality is, is around offline payments, the ability to have completely offline payments using physical tokens, whether that be a card or some other form. But certainly there are characteristics of blockchain there insofar that it is a programmable currency. Certainly one of the benefits from both a monitoring transactions and adjusting fiscal policy perspective that the government is interested in. Right. And, and again, that gets back to sort of the crux, I think, the crux of the issue that a decentralized system flourishes in a world where one does not have faith in a centralized system, right? Because again, this, correct me if I'm wrong here, but there's nothing a decentralized system can do that Google can't do with a password, right? At the, at the end of the day, if you, if you don't have faith in Google, then you've got, that's where the, one can go towards a decentralized system. China's the ultimate centralized system. And again, China can have its own decentralized system within China, which effectively still is a centralized system. Is that the ultimate contradiction here? Or is that the ultimate reason that the blockchain in its traditional Western form doesn't work in China because China is the ultimate centralized system? Look, I mean, politically, some people would argue that communism is the ultimate goal of democracy is to eventually get to that point, right? There is, but that doesn't fit in every geography, jurisdiction and culture, right? So, you know, I, I think if, other countries around the world could get to the point of having a centralized digital currency like what China is doing. If they, if other countries could politically and culturally do that, they would, because that would be the for a government. It's it's probably the most perfect scenario is where you have visibility and control over what people are doing with their money. The challenge is if you try that in the U.S., all 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 hell would break loose and. In China, people don't really have a choice. I mean, you vote with your feet in terms of moving out of the country, but if you're there, you'll you'll go forward with whatever the whatever the possibility is. Now, that being said, I'm a little bit of a supportive of what the government is doing. I mean, it is, certainly there is 
a lot more visibility that they will have in terms of monetary transactions and surveillance possibilities that they will have with a central bank digital currency. And when you when you bring that together with the social credit system and all the other monitoring and surveillance systems that China has, it's a pretty Orwellian setting. But to be honest, that's kind of where we're moving in many of the countries as well. I mean, here in Singapore, there's a there's a metro station that has opened just downstairs, and we, my son loves looking at surveillance cameras. And just in the entrance of the metro station, there are 40 surveillance cameras, just looking at the four different entrances that are going into that. Now, why do you need that much, right? And I think we're seeing this happen globally. It's just that China is further ahead of where the rest of the world will be, likely with digital currency and with surveillance in general in 50 years from now. But I think, look, I think that's completely fair. I mean, the UK is a very good example of this with CCTV and which effectively goes back to the 1980s with the, the issues with the IRA and terrorism back then, but it really has not changed and it's consistently gone down this path towards most Western states in the guise of protecting citizens from you know, external terrorism threats. But there's a law and order element to this as well. And it'd be great if I could get Edward Snowden to have a conversation about this sort of stuff, but you know, China doesn't have a monopoly on does not have a monopoly on surveillance. And it's interesting you brought up the content, the, the issue about an implied a digital, a, a digital US dollar. The moment you mentioned that Jerome Powell can monitor transactions, there ain't a Republican who's, who will vote for a digital, a digital dollar. I find it impossible to see how that happens. It is and it isn't. If the government was looking to get your bank transactions and you were suspected of something, they would be able to do that. It's just not... Of course, they need a court order and they need to go through some steps, but that ability to see transactions is already there. The government, supposedly the IRS monitors any transactions that come into a bank account or out of a bank account over 10,000 US dollars. And those are automatically reported by the banks to the IRS. So the, the ability to monitor is still there. Certainly when you have physical dollars, it's very difficult to monitor that. But I think the thing that people need to get comfortable with is there's not much difference between a digital currency and what we're on now. I mean, I every day I use credit cards, I use my phone, I rarely touch cash, and that's effectively digital currency. Now, the, the settlement rails in the background change, but I, I think when the people get really excited about the Chinese central bank digital currency, I've heard people say, oh, it enables offline transactions. Well, debit cards and credit cards have that functionality too, that you can do offline transactions. Well, it enables financial inclusion. Well, the government could do that right? already. Just put a magnetic stripe or a chip onto the ID cards of everybody in China and they would have access to a bank account. They've done a tremendous amount to do that. And so I, I don't get terribly excited when I think about the possibilities of the CBDC because I think we're largely already there. And, and that's something that people just have to come to grips with because it's it's only going to go in this direction. We're not going to move back to physical cash at this point. No, and but I do think again and again whether but whether we we're not going to go back to physical cash. That's a true statement. But whether we transition towards a more blockchain decentralized system, I think is incredible. Is at best incredibly debatable. And I think that the reality is that this this path we are on towards a, a digital world is well and truly entrenched. I mean, you implied this. It's it's PayPal, PayPal and Stripe are just two of the, the great the great examples of this. But let's talk a little bit about, last time you were on was actually a while ago, uh, and we talked about Ant Group and the Ant Group, the IPO suspension and the like. Can you talk a little bit about Ant Group and Alipay in regards to the rails they provide? Because they are, you know, they are the they are the rails of, of a digital world in, in China. How has the clampdown on Ant Group in particular, and to Alipay as, as well to a lesser extent, been part of the rollout of the digital RMB? And talk about how, how you see the ecosystem evolving of a world that has a digital RMB plus the dominance of, of WeChat Pay and Alipay. Yeah, I guess what kind of disappoints me with the regulatory approach to fintech in general in China was the speed with which it was done. All of the topics that that the Chinese regulators and the government are looking at for tech in general in China are the same conversations that we're having in the U.S. around the big tech giants in the U.S. It's just that they're happening much, much quicker. And obviously, it's happening in the in that political system, which is much faster than the U.S. political system in terms of moving forward with regulation. So I guess what I'm disappointed with is that the government didn't seem to really give much notice to these tech companies about what was happening. And I feel to a certain extent, when you look at the tech industry in China, yourself, Paul, think about the Chinese brands. There's no, you might know Hire 
for white goods, like for refrigerators and ovens and things. You know, Alibaba, you know, Tencent, you know, Baidu. For the majority of people, those would be the brands that we recognize. And they're all tech companies, right, that the government has kind of enabled over the past two decades to grow and flourish. So to really cut the legs off these companies at this point is is somewhat short-sighted in my mind. And, and obviously, we're not sitting in Zhongnanhai to be able to understand what was going through regulator and government's mind when they did this. But it's a bit disappointing, especially when you look at everything that these companies have done to enable economic empowerment and financial inclusion in China. I mean, for the multiple different reports that we've done for the UN, we did one for MasterCard on financial inclusion. We've talked to some of the people that have been impacted by these these ecosystems, the Alipay ecosystem, the WeChat Pay ecosystem. And the stories are incredible. I mean, there are people that, as an example, there's a scooter salesman that we spoke to in, in Hangzhou. And, you know, he runs a small shop with a couple thousand dollars in inventory and probably a couple thousand dollars in turnover every month. For him to go to the bank and even try and borrow a thousand dollars, first of all, the bank, it costs them about 250 US dollars to actually evaluate a loan application. So if you're already spending $250, on a thousand dollar loan, it's immediately unprofitable. Like you, you have to be at least at fifty thousand, hundred thousand dollars before any kind of loan makes sense. So the banks have been loath to lend to SMEs and retail uh, consumers that aren't borrowing that much money that might just need money till next week or till till next month. And that's really put these SMEs and individuals in tight situations where they've had to go to loan sharks effectively and pay 20, 30, 40 percent interest just to just to get cash and. And this gentleman is one of those people that was able to tap into the the ant group ecosystem and access capital and and i think that's that's one of the big challenges now for ant group and the implications there and payments were always the entry point for ant group and there are some there's some strong implications because effectively the e-rem and b will offer interoperability with domestic payments so you could be a wechat merchant and somebody from a an Alipay consumer could buy from you. This is the equivalent of you going into a merchant using a Visa card and the merchant only accepts MasterCard, but the transaction still goes through. We've never seen this before globally, this kind of interoperability. So that will certainly impact the revenue opportunity because it's no longer a four-party model. It's a essentially just one-party model where Ant is just getting that, that front-end fee from however they're going to get it from the consumer. So that's one implication is that that payment revenue is going to drop, but that was never the real driver for revenue for Ant Group. It was more the lending. It was more the wealth management where they could charge the extra margins. Now, the challenge that they're facing around that is how easy it is to do that, because now, at least with the lending, that needs to be split out. And, and I remember when UADAO first launched in China, it was open to foreigners for a brief period of time. And so I, I used it and it was an incredibly compelling experience. I mean, it was very easy to use very straightforward. And, and you could as easily on the Metro, you could just type in your details. And in a couple minutes, you were, you were earning interest on your investment. But now they've been forced to separate these tools so that convenience factor isn't there. So that will certainly impact things. But I, I think payments, I'm not so worried about payments. I'm worried about everything that happens after that. So let me, let me play devil's advocate for that and say the following, that Ant Group in particular, if it looks like a bank and acts like a bank, it's a bank, right? And Alipay for the last nine years, or eight years, sorry, has been allowed to flourish as a bank when its competitors, the traditional banking system, have been regulated like banks, such as bank holding companies and the like. So now what we also, A, all we have done is level the playing field and treating Ant Group like the bank that it actually is and regulating it in the same way as the other traditional banks were. But the other side of that coin is the reason that Ant Group has done what it has done is not that it was underregulated per se, certainly helped, but they haven't gotten to where they are because of underregulation. They've gotten to where they are because they're awesome at what they do. They have gotten to where they are because they allow your scooter salesman to be financially included. And the fact that they now have to put up 30% against a loan as a bank holding company doesn't preclude that loan from still occurring, right? Now, Ant Group will be less profitable going forward, you know, because if you've got to put up more money as a bank holding company, you are going to be less profitable. You can make less loans and you can't do as much. But it's not like everyone's going to turn around and say, oh, my God, China Merchants is now the place to go for all of this stuff, right? Ant Group is still going to dominate because Ant Group is awesome. How would you how would you argue against that? 
I wouldn't argue against that. I, I think that's the way that these companies have done it. I and mean, just to give you an example, you mentioned China Merchants Bank. That's our that's our corporate bank in China. For me to make a payment on China Merchants Bank, I need two USB sticks and four passwords, and I need to log in twice <laughs> to make a payment to to make it and improve it. For me to make a payment on Alipay, it's click click click, and I'm done. That ease of use and that functionality. I think regardless of whether the regulations were tighter or not, the customer experience on using one of the traditional banks' apps is quite awful, and I think many of them would agree. I mean, they they have these technology stacks that were from 40 years ago, that are not adaptable and not agile, and so you're putting lipstick on a pig in terms of the technology of what you're trying to do here to make this pig look good, when you have a very sleek this sleek I don't know what the equivalent animal would be for ant group, but They've come at it with the user and the pain points in mind. I mean, if you look at any of the products that Ant Group has developed, payments, initially to solve the issue of trust in e-commerce, wealth management, to democratize access to wealth management. Before UABAL launched, the minimum investment on a wealth management product was typically 1,000 RMB. 1,000 RMB doesn't seem like that much money, but when the average per capita income, even a few years ago, was tens of thousands of RMB, it becomes challenging to invest. So effectively, UABAL democratized that. Same thing for payments. If you tried to make a card payment in China, even though all of the cards have chip and pin now, oftentimes you'd have to insert your card, type in a pin, and then sign. And that transaction, that's a 90-second transaction as opposed to a QR code, which is a five-second transaction. You know, they've come at this with what are the pain points and the things that we can solve, and how do we solve that in a way that's appealing for the consumers? or for the businesses. Our view on Ant Group's relationship with the eRMB is we believe they probably helped develop it, as I mentioned before, but that will just be another choice in the Ant Group wallet or the Alipay wallet. Like if you open up your app now, you have your ICBC bank account, you have your Alipay balance, you have your China Merchants Bank bank account. And so you can withdraw from the ICBC or the China Merchants Bank, or you can just use what's in your balance. The eRMB will just be another choice on that list for you to take money out of. And so will people go to the ICBC eRMB app? No, because it's going to suck. They're going to go to Alipay because it's an awesome customer experience and the, the easily tap through. That's really the saving grace for these platforms is, yes, they might have to actually be regulated like a bank. And, and I would argue if you look back actually at, in, in particular on Lufax here, because you can see that in their, their, their financial records, if you look back three or four years ago, about 30% of their loans were on Lufax's books. And similarly for Ant, I don't have exact numbers, but about 25 or 30% were sitting on their books. And we actually heard that the government wanted those loans to be on the bank's books. So if you look over the next couple of years, that 30% went down to 2 or 3%. Now, part of that was the fact that Alipay struggled to attract deposits on its platforms like my bank. But at the same time, the government was kind of shifting them in that direction, and now it wants them to go back. And that's one part of the, the kind of history of this trials and tribulations for Ant Group that most people don't recognize is like before they were actually really towing the line with what the government wanted. But now the government's priorities are in a different direction. Right. But that actually goes back to, and this is obviously a broader tech regulation discussion. I mean, like the calls for the demise of, you know, of Alibaba and, and Tencent and Tencent and Tencent Music and all and Meichuan and the like missed the point that they still provide. That the reason they've thrived is because they have found pain points they have sold for those pain points and consumer love their consumers love their product. And again, they may make less money going forward. I don't think that's any doubt. I think what we're seeing with Facebook here at the moment is another great example that it's pretty hard to see how Facebook isn't heavily regulated for what they do, but they're still going to be a profitable business going forward if they can get if they can get their their, their morale, if they get their morale, if they get their moral code sort of turned around in the right direction. Let's talk a little bit about sort of the gold standard globally for sort of for 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 blockchain and digital and digital currency innovation, which is which is Singapore. Um, there's a reason you're in Singapore doing what you're doing, right? So talk a little bit about what what Singapore is doing well, what the government is doing doing well, and why has the digital ecosystem been able to flourish in Singapore like it has? Actually, the reason I'm in Singapore is actually much more simple than that. And so my wife is Singaporean, and she very democratically said, if you want to help me raise the child, I'll be in Singapore. And so we Got moved it. to yep. A side benefit was the fact that it is really the, the fintech center of Southeast Asia, at least, and increasingly Asia as well. I think from a very basic level, 
Singapore makes it very easy to do business. The regulations are clear. Setting up a company is clear. The rule of law, with the exception of maybe opening up a bank account, getting a company set up here and, and operating is very straightforward. And the regulations are very clear on what you can and cannot do. When you look at a lot of the crypto businesses, I mean, many of those wouldn't fall into any regulatory space anyways. They might be working in NFTs or or something like that and using just purely crypto for payments. So that wouldn't fall in any particular jurisdiction. But once you obviously get into the exchange or the, the retail point of sale or e-commerce point of sale, then the government wants to have a little bit more of a view on that. But fundamentally, Singapore is a 750 square kilometer island with very few natural resources. And it's always relied on services and innovation to get ahead. Now, you could argue how strong is the innovation in, in Singapore as compared to places like China, which you know, probably would be a good argument, but they have done very well on focusing in on particular areas like biotech or tech or fintech. And, and crypto has been part of that. Now, there's a certain number of people that are, you know, homegrown native Singaporeans that are developing these companies. And then there are also the crypto nomads or, or people that are moving in from other jurisdictions. With everything that China has done in the past couple of weeks, if I was running a Bitcoin exchange in Hong Kong, I'd be thinking about, hmm, Maybe I should be brushing up on my, my Singaporean Mandarin rather than my Hokkien because I may have to move there at some point coming up. And, and indeed, we've seen a lot of relocation, not just of crypto companies, but financial technology companies and financial services companies from Hong Kong to Singapore for that very reason is the unpredictability of the future in that jurisdiction. So a certain amount is the government being very pragmatic and forward around the way that it wants to go. Another part of that is Singapore is the best option of many others. If you look around the region, certainly Indonesia, Indonesia, especially in Bali, at least before the pandemic, had a lot of crypto nomads that were there and a lot of businesses that were being run out of there. But due to the pandemic, a lot of people have moved on to other jurisdictions. But once you get into the regulatory space, Singapore is really the, the most straightforward place, maybe, maybe just a little bit ahead of Malaysia in terms of payment regulation, maturity, and infrastructure to be able to actually move forward with something. And and formally, we haven't had a lot, correct me if I'm wrong, we haven't heard a lot about the potential for digital Singapore dollar. Is there really anything sort of manoeuvring there in regards to this, or is this more about the underlying crypto blockchain infrastructure that the Singapore government's getting behind to promote that as a, as a global destination for crypto? I wouldn't say that they're getting behind the infrastructure itself, but they're getting behind the companies and in putting the enabling infrastructure in place to, to allow companies to operate crypto businesses here. I think the government is somewhat neutral on you know, whether Ethereum is the future or not, but companies that are working on Ethereum projects are certainly welcome to come to Singapore and set up operations here and operate legally in the space. And I think the government, they're not placing bets on particular cryptos, certainly in that space. They do want the education infrastructure, they want the opportunities for grads, in the crypto and blockchain space to be there going forward in the future. I, I think the, the only area that we're really seeing in place bets is, as we mentioned before, around the digital assets. And that's where the Temasek and SGX and a lot of local players are getting involved. The one exception I would say is the government's push around being a cross-border hub for cross-border crypto transactions. So there was a paper that was published last week from BIS talking about the progress that's been made with the Embridge project which is kind of an extension of some of the work that's been done, I believe, between Hong Kong and the Philippines, Singapore and Thailand around cross-border crypto settlement and, and potential CBDCs. So I could see Singapore, whatever this looks like in the future, but I could see it look, being a cross-border settlement hub for multiple different cryptocurrencies because, sorry, multiple different CBDCs for all the same reasons that it is a hub for cross-border transactions in general now. It's a trusted location that if you move your money to, you're relatively sure that you're going to get your money out of in whichever currency you're looking for in the back end. Got it. How much are you focusing on India? Um, yeah. Right. So tell us about sort of the framework there. Obviously, the exciting thing for India, for me, in the greater scheme of things, is that India has effectively a unlimited diaspora, an unlimited amount of intellectual property and potentially an unlimited amount of capital to be able to build the indigenous technology companies that Reliance obviously is front and centre at the, at the moment. 
And obviously, if we are heading towards a more of a world of, of what I call tech nationalism, India is the, probably the place where it may not be the, the final battle frontier between the likes of Alibaba and Amazon when India's own homegrown companies can actually probably rise up and defeat both of them. Talk a little bit about what India is doing on the fintech, what development you're seeing in the fintech side of things, and particularly in payments. Yeah, I mean, when you look at India, the, the obvious thing within fintech and the financial industry is the India stack that basically includes the, the UPI, ADHAR, and all of the goodness that allows you to make uh, very seamless payments across across the uh, country. So for those of you who may not be familiar with ADR, that's the, the national ID system basically that enables the electronic national ID system. And on top of that, we have what's UPI, Universal Payment Interface, I believe, that essentially allows for proxy mapping of real-time payments to mobile phone numbers. So you know, you need to, to send money to somebody, you need to know their mobile phone number, but you don't necessarily need to know their bank account or any of the other details around that person. And so that has enabled an incredible wave of payment modernization in India that really it comes close to trumping what we've seen in China. But in a different way, China, a lot of the revolution was really private-led, whereas in India, that basic infrastructure was provided by the public sector. It was the government that set up Adhara and obviously UPI that enabled all of these financial products and services on top of that. And so when you think about it yourself as a fintech in India, say you're a lending fintech, you no longer have to worry about how you move money in and out of your account. You no longer have to worry about having multiple bank accounts. You just bank with one bank and you've got this UPI infrastructure on the back end that makes making sending or receiving money very trivial. And that's that's really kind of provide that baseline infrastructure for the fintech industry in India to grow. Now all of that being said, the government has been a little bit restrictive towards foreign players coming into the market. Obviously, we know some of the WhatsApp travails around payments in, in India, at least initially. And then obviously, Amazon and some of the other foreign players have had trouble there before. And, and India is, seems to be somewhat anti-crypto at the moment, probably for many of the same reasons that China is. The rupee is a, a capital-controlled currency, and it's, the financial industry is growing quickly, but it is also somewhat fragile. So... Again, when the local infrastructure eliminates a lot of the, the, the challenges that fintechs would play, what is the role of crypto and, and what, it, what is it going to accomplish beyond introducing more risk into the system? Right. If you were to look at the traditional banking systems across the region, which country do you think is doing the best job at innovating? Because again, I, one of the problems that Chinese banks have, the Indian banks have, if you're the best and brightest, you're not you're not going to work at, at ICICI or somewhere like or some, somewhere like that. You mentioned Malaysia just then, but which jurisdiction would you say the traditional banks are doing the best job in terms of fintech innovation? I think the biggest the biggest and just to kind of redirect the question a little bit, I, I think the biggest innovation has been real-time payments in Asia. And so that's that's Malaysia, that's Australia, that's Singapore, that's Indonesia, Vietnam, Philippines, all these countries that have moved to real-time payment systems. And that has enabled so much and, and really forced the game for the local players. And, and I think that's that's one of the challenges in a lot of these markets. I mean, when you look in Singapore, there's obviously DBS, OCBC, and UOB. And those three Singaporean banks probably control 80 to 90% of retail deposits in Singapore. The foreign banks chip away at the wealth management side of things and cards, but it's those local banks. And that's led to some kind of strange practices. As an example, the, the three banks' ATM networks are not interoperable in Singapore. So whereas in the U.S., you could go to an HSBC ATM and use the, the Cirrus network, which I believe is provided by MasterCard, to withdraw using your, your Citibank card from a HSBC ATM, you wouldn't be able to do that in Singapore. And so you find this odd scenario where you're I mean, not so much now, obviously, during the pandemic, but often when you go to the entrance to one of the subway stations, there will be a UOB ATM, an OCBC ATM, and a DBS ATM. And the DBS may have 10 people in queue behind it, but then nobody at OCBC or UOB, which, you know, is kind of strange. And when I first got here and was just using foreign credit cards or foreign debit cards, it, it didn't make sense. But you have these little quirks in the market that the traditional, I would say the financial ecosystem. So, I mean, there's there's as much blame to put on the MAS around this as it is the banks, but to a certain extent, the banks have been allowed to get too powerful 
here in Singapore. And there hasn't been a need for these banks beyond you know, slick marketing that the most innovative bank in the world is DBS. Beyond that marketing element of things, there hasn't been really a push to innovate so much at these banks. So I think when, when real-time payments was launched here in Singapore and, and in other jurisdictions, especially when fintechs have access to that real-time payment system, that changes the game. Because then banks, the, the relevance of banks all of a sudden just drops dramatically. In many of the markets, you'll see that only banks have access to the real-time payment system. The fintechs have to work through the banks to be able to access real-time payments in those, in those markets. But I think that has been the, the key driver of competition in many of the markets. And I think the second thing is the digital banks. So when we look in Hong Kong, the digital banks, obviously well-funded, so they're able to offer things like 6% interest for the first 100,000 people that sign up. But the fees are much lower, and that's really forced the traditional banks to respond. I know HSBC in particular in, in Hong Kong, a lot of the retail banking fees have been dropped because the digital banks were providing services for free. You could have the equivalent of one US dollar, seven and a half Hong Kong dollars in your account and not pay any fees, which in most jurisdictions would be very, very challenging. So I wouldn't frame the point as which banks are, are, are doing well on their own. I mean, they're being forced to do well with these market dynamics that are changing the nature of competition in the market and forcing them to, to look beyond and actually innovate. Got it. Does Visa and MasterCard have a future in Asia? We've had many conversations with these companies around China as well. And, and we were very bearish on these companies coming into China because really between China Union Pay, Alipay, and WeChat Pay, there's not much market there. But one of the schemes that we talked to said, look, we don't need that many transactions. We're very profitable after a certain point. So after they invest the, the, the 10, 20, 30 million dollars that they need to get the infrastructure set up in a place like China, then the transactions are almost gravy once that infrastructure is there because their cost of running and their fixed cost is very low. So for the traditional banks and Visa and MasterCard, I mean, obviously they, they all run the risk of becoming utilities to a certain extent. Maybe Visa and MasterCard somewhat are a utility, right, in terms of their payment scheme and their payment rails, but the banks even as well. The future could be that you're just interfacing with a fintech and there's a bank on the back end. But the thing that people need to realize is that the margins are quite high on these businesses. So for HSBC to stop charging $5 a month for having a retail account in Hong Kong, sure, it impacts their revenue, but they can offset that. And they can you know, lose a little bit of margin because they're already very profitable as well. And so I, I think Visa and MasterCard, they're still benefiting from more and more people getting online and, and getting cards in Asia. And hopefully once borders open back up, people that are doing cross-border transactions as well. Although, of course, e-commerce is, is leveraging these networks. But I think once things open up again, their growth will continue from growth in transaction volume and, and transaction value as more people come onto the network. But when you look more like 10 years out, then you have to consider, okay, what are the future of these companies? And, and are they going to be relevant in this world that has crypto rails that are very efficient, that has real-time payments? The same question could be asked of SWIFT as well, is what is your future when you have tie-ups like we've seen over the past couple of weeks between Singapore and India and Singapore and Thailand that using a QR code, you can make seamless cross-border payments very cheaply. Yeah. So, so one question from the audience, which goes back to this sort of collaboration argument, it says, do countries or economic blocks, i.e. ASEAN, have working groups to establish standards for blockchain slash crypto, or are they doing this and taking a siloed approach? Yeah, and, and we were just having a discussion about this earlier in the day on another webinar around real-time payments. And, and so somebody was saying this was all part of the ASEAN plan of payment integration framework. And really, really, it's not. I mean, the ASEAN payment network was set up about 10 years ago and has accomplished very little. The benefit that it, Europe had, I mean, Europe is as the single European payment area and, and is, is probably the best example that we have of a, a seamless cross-border payment network. The advantage that SEPA had is the fact that it is largely one single currency, the euro, and it has one regulator, the ECB, that's sitting in the background that, that regulates across all of the different countries that are using the euro and using SEPA. The challenge in Southeast, well, Asia in general, but in more particularly in Southeast Asia, is when you look across Asia, the only real natural block 
is, well, you could argue Australia, New Zealand, but it's really Southeast Asia, right? Like you wouldn't see China, Korea, Japan really coming together at any point in the near future around an economic agreement or, or any kind of collaboration around that. But the one area was ASEAN and Southeast Asia. But it just hasn't happened because those questions about, okay, if we set up an ASEAN payment network, what is the principal currency? Who is actually going to own the network? What are the rules for coming in and out? And, and what does that mean for my country? And so that, that has proved to be the challenge. And that's why we're seeing these bilateral relationships between Singapore and Thailand or Singapore and India rather than a regional regional network. And our, our view is that we'll have these uh, we'll have these bilateral relationships that eventually will become the de facto ASEAN payment network with Singapore probably sitting in the middle because they facilitate a lot of these relationships. That will happen in the future, but it's not a regional or collective effort. And I think that's one of the challenges that we'll face in crypto as well, is that at least payments are something that most of the jurisdictions in Southeast Asia can understand. But once you get into crypto and you explain to a, a minister of trade in one of these Southeast Asian countries about what the implications of, well, just even what crypto is and what the implications are, it's going to be a challenging conversation. And I think moving beyond that is, is going to be even, even more challenging. So I think you will see, especially in the crypto space, you'll see Singapore take a lead and become a regional hub for crypto and a lot of these, these cryptocurrencies and the settlement networks. They have the opportunity because it is a new space, whereas payments is obviously decades old. So having this new space where, where they are the first movers can have a lot of benefits. And so I think rather than any kind of regional regulations, we'll see kind of Singapore take the lead and, and potentially other countries follow Singapore's lead in that respect. Got it. Where, where is WeChat Pay and Alipay in terms of sort of market share in Southeast Asia or in terms of adoption in Southeast Asia? On terms of sort of broad across cross um, cross border e-commerce and the like. It's not great, I would say. And I'm not sure if they care at the moment because they're fighting so many fires in their, their domestic market that the international part of the business is, is not as much of a consideration. I think certainly from the merchant perspective, there's a big focus from Tencent and, and Alipay to expand merchant acceptance across e-commerce platforms and other other platforms so people especially now during the pandemic people can order on Chinese nationals can order things from Singapore or Indonesia or other e-commerce sites so there's a big focus on that but they they've really struggled to uh, get kind of retail adoption I, I would say and, and probably for yourself as well you may be on WeChat but the people that I know that are on WeChat are either Chinese nationals in China abroad or foreigners who have had some kind of connection to China in the past or have business with China. It's just not the primary platform of choice. And so I think they've struggled in, in many of the Southeast Asia markets, as well as India and, and other places globally to make those stick. Now, the, the interesting, and you hadn't asked the question about WhatsApp, but I know that one's coming. That is really the dark horse because WhatsApp has done an amazing job of being a very simple application you need a phone number and then you're you're online and you're exchanging messages with anybody else around the world. And that's one thing that made WeChat so sticky is because every morning when I was in China, that was the one app that I opened in the morning. And now, now that I'm out of China, the one app that I open every morning is WhatsApp to see conversations with friends or groups in it. So, you know, Facebook's ability to leverage that stickiness of that app to provide payment solutions is, is really quite interesting, especially when you look like India as an example, India has 300 million people that are using WhatsApp in the country and is probably much more now. And this idea of payment links is really taking off. So instead of buying through a traditional e-commerce website, they will go on to WhatsApp. The, the merchant will send them a catalog, either automated or just essentially a PDF of the catalog. The individual will make the order all within the WhatsApp chat. And then the merchant will send them a link to make the payment. And the link, when the person clicks on that, will go outside of WhatsApp into another app, another payment gateway to complete the transaction, often through UPI um, as well on that, and then come back and give the, the acceptance on the back end to the merchant. So that's a non-native payment experience. And increasingly, as Facebook is able to make those native payment experiences within the WhatsApp landscape, that's going to be very powerful. And that, that's going to be very difficult for any of the Chinese players or indeed any of the other payments players around the world to compete with. Because it's the adoption of that platform and the the simplicity of the platform is really incredible. Right. Mate, let's get you out of here on this. Let's go back to China and in terms of and, and let's look at this through a digital asset NFT lens for a second. Crypto is illegal. Is there a role and a future for digital assets in China like NFTs 
does is there a place in the art world for this is there a place in just other sort of general assets without the crypto element I'll try and keep my personal opinions about whether NFTs are valuable or not. I think in many of the, I'll try and keep that opinion to the side. But one of the things we didn't talk about is the the BSN or the blockchain service network that China has has implemented and and is supporting the development of. And so going back, China is a fan of blockchain, and they've made that very clear. They're just not a fan of you know tokenized assets in the form of cryptocurrencies on that blockchain. And so within the context of the BSN, there will be some integration with the eRenminbi between the BSN and the eRenminbi, although the eRenminbi does not run on the BSN and nor does the BSN run on the eRenminbi. But much like the BSN has support for things like Ethereum, there, there will be support for the eRenminbi on there as well. So I think the government sees the benefit of digital assets in general, whether those be NFTs or other representations of financial assets. I think they certainly recognize that. We're getting to this concept of the metaverse and and what the opportunities are there and and being the fact that the the millennials in China, many of them, their primary device is their smartphone. When you look at PC ownership in the US, it's about 80% of households have some kind of computer at home. In China, that number is about 50%. But then 75% of all the phones that are sold are smartphones. So for the average individual that lives in their smartphone, having a an NFT platform on there or having a digital asset represented on their phone is quite a compelling value proposition. Now, the flip side of that is we've seen the government crack down recently on gaming, online gaming, and now kids are limited in terms of how much they can play. One could rightly or wrongly think that trading NFTs is, is online with gaming in terms of not being a particularly productive way of spending youth's time when they should be studying or, or whatever else the Chinese government wants them to do. So we could see a crackdown on that. The other challenge around that is the fact that it could be used for effectively for money laundering, right? I mean, if you're buying an NFT in China and you're exporting it, that's essentially the same thing as, as doing with Ethereum or Bitcoin or anything else. And, and indeed, when you look at some of the, the cash ways of getting money overseas, often you'd one of the stories was going to Macau and you bet, you make a bet in B, and then you, you lose a couple of games and then you cash out in Hong Kong dollars. Similarly, there were stores that you could go to and buy a, a painting. Rolex. Or, Rolex and Rolex was a great example of that. Yeah, yeah. And, and then rather than taking ownership of the watch, you returned it and you immediately get a refund. I mean, there were, there were so many ways that in the, the physical world and the non-digital world that individuals were using to evade the capital controls that one would think that the government, at least in the near term, would would want to control that a little bit more. And any of the digital assets would would most likely need to be tied in to either the BSN or the eRenminbi somehow. The other thing is we could see the eRenminbi, that platform, be extended to include NFTs, right? There's, there's no reason that the government couldn't design it such that there are other digital assets that are stored on that technology. And so that could be an interesting application in the future is what do we see beyond the eRenminb? Again, it's not a blockchain, it's a centralized system, but does it need to be? Does it need to be a decentralized system for NFTs? Maybe not. Zenon, thank you. We could do this for hours. This is this is loads of fun. We're going to have to get you back soon because it's front and center of everything. Zenon, thanks for your time. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Paul.